0: Hello, friends. My name is Case, and this is Peak Earth. Today, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with James Connolly. James was the producer of Sacred Cow, the best documentary on food, health, environment, ethics, and how they all interplay and interact. This was based on a book written by Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. James is also the producer and co-host of Sustainable Dish podcast, along with Diana Rogers. He is also the co founder of the nonprofit The Bubble Foundation, which teaches New York City kids from low income families about food, nutrition, and holistic health. James is currently working on a project called Death in the Garden, which is a series of podcasts covering regeneration of our culture, of our food system, which will in the future be an amazing documentary that I'm really looking forward to watching. And now, I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here today with James Connolly, how are you? Good, good man, thanks for uh, reaching out. Absolutely, really excited to have this conversation with you. You've been involved with a lot of interesting things and deeply involved. You've got a unique view and an insightful view on on many of the things that I find fascinating. So really looking forward to having this conversation today. Cool, man, cool.
1: Where should we begin?
0: Well, I was listening yesterday to your conversation with Anthony Gustin on the Natural State podcast. You're talking about how your first job was at the age of 14 at a butcher in, in New York City. And I'd love to learn more about that. What was that? What was that like?
1: Yeah, um, you know, uh, it was probably one of the last butcher shops um, before we have like now a Like somewhat of a resurgence in butcher shops in New York. Uh, There's a number of ones in Brooklyn. There's ones in Manhattan now. Um, They're they're all operating under the same sort of like system, which is within 150 miles of New York City. Uh, They work exclusively with a number of ranchers and farmers, Um, and you know that they are trying to kind of like remove themselves from. Uh, the meat production industry Um, when I started out I was 14 years old my dad got me this job I didn't want it (laughs) you know Um, and I kind of went at it kicking and screaming and we were paid like three dollars an hour plus tips which was like delivering uh, you know 10 pounds of meat through the rain to some 9 year old woman who paid you a quarter and thought she was doing you like, you know, a huge favor. Um, but at like 14 years old, I did it for four years. Um, my dad never taught me how to quit a job. So I ended up joining the military. Uh, and that was the only reason I left. Uh, but it was a 1950s like old school Irish butcher shop. Uh, and we would do everything from nose to tail. We'd have tripe, we'd have beef tongue. Uh, you know, we would, uh, We would uh, do, we would have halal slaughter because we had had the huge uh, Indian, um, growing Indian neighborhood um, in this one area in Jackson Heights and Queens where you'd have like, I don't know, like um, 250,000 people from the tri-state area descend on these like three blocks in Jackson Heights on the weekends. Uh, And so we were like the only butcher shop left, uh, you know, like in that area and just trying to like make ends meet. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was really good. I don't think I appreciated it at the time um, because I think you're kind of, you know, like you, you're a kid who's grown up in the city and you don't know, you have no relationship to where your food is coming from. And now suddenly you're breaking down animals. Uh, you're seeing, you know, um, quarter cows come in. You're seeing half pigs come in. You're, you're seeing these master butchers go and try to make, uh, every piece of uh, cut of that meat into something that is saleable. Uh, and then you see a number of people come in and everybody just comes in they order filet mignon, (laughs) you know, um, or like, you know, they order like the, 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 cuts that they think are probably the, you know, the most healthy or, uh, the most satisfying in terms of tenderness. And so you have all of these off cuts that nobody would even touch at the time. Short ribs, um, Uh, you know, like bones, you know, you give them away to your dog, like all of that stuff. So I I was 14 at the time. And then to see the sort of resurgence, like 20 years later of all of these, uh, all of the rest of the animal being valued and valued in a way that like you go to three star restaurants, four star restaurants in New York city. And that's what they're serving now, right? They realize like fat equals flavor. You want proper marbling on your meat. That filet mignon tastes like fucking nothing, you know? Like there's no, there's no like terroir to that animal, right? You, you had the least used part of that meat. And then, you know, like you're making, I'm making beef cheeks now and I'm making like all of this other stuff that I'd, you know, would have been thrown away back then, you know? So it was, it was a seminal experience, you know, like really interesting experience at 14 to do that for four years. Uh, and then years later, um, you know, at later end of my 30s, I'd got the opportunity to travel to England. Um, and take a sabbatical from work that I was doing in this nonprofit. Um, so it's centered around changing food systems in New York, but mainly public schools, inner city schools. Uh, I had the opportunity to spend some time in England, and I met up with a number of like old school Irish butchers who allowed me to work with them, and apprentice with them, uh, you know, for uh, close to a year. And that was pretty stunning. These guys were absolutely amazing, totally old school like missing fingers, you know, like meat hook scars across the front of their faces, (laughs) you know, just like, you know, the bandsaw just like chopping off like, you know, like huge parts of their bodies, (laughs) you know. Um, But they were like solid of the earth, like awesome guys, you know, like really cool, but like masters in their trade. Uh, So it was really cool to kind of like bookend a lot of that stuff, Um, you know, and we were, we were protested, Uh, vegans would come out every weekend, uh, you know, that on Saturdays and Sundays with, like, bullhorns and, you know, protest in front of the shop. And we'd invite them in to have a conversation about how our animal welfare and, you know, all this other stuff. So it was a really interesting experience to go from that to, like, making movies about meat, um, you know, because it's like you're, you're in it, you know, in the butcher world.
0: <laughs> the art of butchery sounds fascinating, and I haven't really contemplated it much because, honestly, I'm not sure if I've ever even really seen... A butchery or walked into one they're so rare these days i remember there was one fairly nearby um bel campo but i w- wouldn't even sure if I, was, I would call that a butchery unfortunately they had some struggles mm. and, and went out of business but um i also think that if we were knowing what we know about health um a butcher that's the original health food store you know that's mm. those are the foods that health comes from and now we have these health food stores that are selling all kinds of wacky nonsense you know, you walk into your local health food store and, and unfortunately, a lot of it is like, I don't know what their top selling products would be, but maybe it's like wheatgrass juice or, or some sort of like, right. like imitation food product.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's 90 percent of New York City is like detoxing from your weekend uh, with green juices and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to live in the city, like knowing what I know now. Um, it's hard to kind of live. Within uh, a sort of matrix environment that is centered around advertising, marketing, finance, and all this other stuff, you're so divorced from where your food is coming from, Um, and so you know oat milk is the thing that everybody asks for now. It's like the you know, and just like, dude, it's just it's so triggering to like to spend your days kind of walking around a system that's always looking for the new food trend that will wait in line for two to three hours for a cronut or something like that. Um, just, just total sugar high, sugar addiction, caffeine addiction, and then, you know, like... Uh, taking all of that stuff down at the end of the night, um, you know, with like just partying all night long and all this other stuff. So when you're when you're focusing on, um, you know, for me, like peace and happiness now is like books and literature and studying and, you know, trying to take care of myself Uh, Take care of my family do all of that stuff to be centered around people who are just like who are working 70 to 80 hour weeks um, You know just to make ends meet in a city that gets more and more expensive Uh, And you're not going to see those lines at butcher shops like the true health food store. You're not going to see that stuff, right? Uh, You know Um, And so a a lot of them have like thrived Uh, people are Like when I first started the nonprofit, nobody was talking about where their food was coming from. Uh, You know, and even uh, during like Michelle, uh, Michelle Obama's Let's Move program where she was focused on food and movement, she was still focused on movement more than she was on food. Uh, You know, so her husband is signing the Farm Bill, which is one of the biggest corporate giveaways uh, at the same day that she's launching Let's Move uh, with Pepsi and, you know, Unilever and all of these ultra processed food companies standing behind her, uh, making a public commitment to like try to assuage the obesity epidemic in America. And I was like the dichotomy, like how do you sit in the same room where like husband and wife are doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing, right? Focus on movement, like movement for mental health, right? So like you move for mental health, you move for, but if you want to deal with obesity, you have to deal with what you're putting on your plate. Um, and adding a whole grains to like public school meals was never going to cut it. Um, you know, in New York now we have a vegan mayor who's not really vegan. Um, you know, is so ridiculous. Like when he was he was doing his campaign, uh, they went and toured his house and they looked in the fridge and there was like chicken in the fridge and they were like, what? Who's? And he's like, "Oh, that's somebody else's chicken." I'm like, "You motherfucker." <laughs> And then he gets caught eating fish every time he goes out to a restaurant. So, like, what vegan are you, you know? Um, but, like, you, so, and you your living in Cali, right? So Cali is, like, you know, the same thing. Green juices, detoxes, like, going to live forever, got to be pretty all the time. Like, that type of, like, mentality um, that's surrounding it. Di- DiCaprio says you, you don't eat meat anymore. But then he goes out to restaurants, he gets photographed eating meat. You know, it's it's such a weird sort of world that we're kind of living in this matrix of, like, people who are, like, uh, paternally telling you how you should live your life when they live completely outside of the scope of anything that the normal human being in America would have to deal with, you know.
0: Absolutely. The hypocrisy is off the hook, especially at these higher levels of, of government. And then our food system just gets so out of whack from these foods with with higher margins being more profitable. And then over the years, over the decades, so much momentum has built up to the fact where these companies are just so massive from selling this junk food and the repercussions of that have led to a massive pharmaceutical industry. So now we've got these two massive industries that are profiting off our, our sickness to such a high level to where yeah we've we've really formed this this matrix or this mirage that that is Mm -hmm. difficult to see through if if you're stuck in it because the messaging, like you said, it's being spread by admirable people, you know, respected high level people. uh, At least that's what they seem to be and and they're giving us this message that is pretty palatable, you know, on, on its face and over time i know i've personally experienced i i know you've personally experienced the health drawbacks from following this message and we both know many 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 people who have also suffered deleterious health effects from from following this message and it's wild to wake up to it and then start to think okay what can i do to restore my health and how can i help others mm-hmm. see through this mirage to re- to regain their health as well because the level of suffering that we're experiencing collectively from this mirage is is insane it's, it really is and i definitely appreciate the work that that you've been doing to help folks pierce this mirage and, and see the truth and um, where are you at now with with this situation is it, is it something that you're invigorated to get up and um help with <laughs> every day or is, is it somewhat somewhat kind of <sighs> depressing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think with, with Sacred Cow,
1: uh, it was really a passion project. Um, uh, the I, I found Diana um, on a podcast. She was fundraising uh, at the very beginning, um, and she was primarily focused on what would have been a health food film. Um, you know, uh, t- talking about low carb diets, um, talking about keto, uh, talking about people who are actually working in communities that are, um, you know, typically marginalized and very poor communities, who have massive obesity uh, problems. Uh, sort of focusing on kids who are growing up in this environment that's so toxic um, to their overall health and well being. Um, and so the the film originally was centered around that and what we saw uh, over the course of the time that we were filming was that the 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 health protocols that we made us afraid of eating meat The sort of cholesterol hypothesis, the um, saturated fat, all of those things were kind of being walked back after years and years of experimentation. While you saw obesity rates rise, you know, you had all of these health experts saying, well, we tell people not to, you know, we're telling people how to eat, but they're just not following the rules. Well, they were actually following the rules. Um, You know, and so what ended up happening was, and the worst part is you, the consumer at the end of it blames themselves, right? They can't control themselves in a toxic food environment. Um, and, you know, um, and, and that's a, it's a marketer's dream, right? You sell them something, you sell them the idea that they're, you know, the low fat trend like snack wells and these low fat foods that were just so loaded with like uh, refined sugars or refined grains and you can't control yourself. So it's your fault, right? Um, and so, of the seven deadly sins that we still talk about, gluttony seems to be like the one that we can still like celebrate in sort of ways. Uh, and you walk to like walk through any transportation hub nowadays, whether it's an airport or you know bus station or train station, and you see people who have to move, who are typically sort of marginalized in this in, uh, in our world nowadays because they're they're moving from desk to desk, who actually have to move, and you just see the scale of the obesity epidemic, right? Um, and it's 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 really terrifying to watch because you're raising kids in an environment like this, and you're also trying to fortify yourself in this environment, right? You're the crazy person who's like eating meat, or you know, is a meat dominant diet. Like, people look at you and they're like, "What are you doing?" Right? Um, and you know, so what what you end up dealing with at the end end result of that is is an entirely um, like. Um, I want to kind of go back to your pharmaceutical analogy. So I'm reading a book right now called Cracked. It's James Davies' book. Um, He's an English um, psychotherapist. And he went and he interviewed all of the people surrounded around what is this sort of compendium, the encyclopedia of what we consider to be like mental disorders, psychological mental disorders. Um, And so I don't know if you remember growing up seeing like... um, Uh, advertisements for um, depression medications Uh, you know if you if you felt uh, you know sad or depressed have trouble sleeping for more than three weeks you may have a chemical imbalance right Here, take this pill for the rest of your life. Yes, it has horrible side effects, and yes, it's going to, um, you know, maybe you, you know, cause impotency or, you know, like decrease sexual uh, drive or anything like that, but this will make you happy. Well, this guy, uh, he interviews this guy who did a meta analysis of all of the trial data that he could find on um, the efficacy of a lot of these drugs, uh, antipsychotic medication and antidepressants. Um, and so when he looked at the meta analysis, he said that really, for the most part, these medications do not much better than a sugar pill, right? And so he put out this meta analysis and people lost their minds. This is like 2012. Uh, the pharmaceutical agencies, like everybody, you know, even the FDA were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, you didn't look at all of the data. And he was like, what do you mean I didn't look at all the data? He was like, but you didn't show all the trials that we didn't publish. He was like, you didn't publish trials? He was like, show me those. <laughs> and so he, Freedom, of Meta, Freedom of Information Act, he ended up getting a lot of... So pharmaceutical agencies will go, they'll, they do antidepressant uh, trials. Um, if nine out of those 10 trials don't show... Uh, that this thing works better than placebo, but one does, well, which one do they publish, right? They publish the one. And even if it's a mild efficacy, it shows some degree of efficacy, right? Uh, And so you go and you deal with that. So he starts to look at the nine as well. And he's like, wait a second, it doesn't even show that this is even moderately better than a sugar pill. That any of the benefits you have from this are one, from thinking that you're taking a pill, right? So the placebo effect. So you think you're taking a pill every single day, you pop up, you wake up every morning, you take this pill, you think it's working. And so your mind creates an environment where you now believe that it's working. Then you have the secondary part of it, which is you experience side effects. So then your body is like, your mind is like, well, I'm experiencing side effects, so there has to be good effects as well. <laughs> right? And so you like push that as well, you know? And so um, one of the problems with the DSM for years was they were like, it's called the depression clause, right? Um, so the DSM says uh, if you if you've been depressed for more than three weeks, then maybe you have a chemical imbalance. But what if what if your mother passes away? What if she dies? Um, now you're mourning, right? So how long should mourning last? Uh, And so they always had this depression clause. If you have an event in your life that causes you uh, to be depressed, um, so a traumatic event, right? Somebody in your life passes away uh, or something like that. What is the maximum period of time before we decide you have a chemical imbalance, right? Never mind that most people are doing jobs they don't want to fucking do, (laughs) right? So they're not doing jobs that they want to do. So if you have a lifestyle that's depressing, That's okay. you have a chemical imbalance. (laughs) If your mother passes away, uh, all right, well, you have some trauma. And so they couldn't square this circle for a long time because they had this depression clause that was centered around uh, mourning. Well, so the newest DSM, uh, how did they reconcile this? They got rid of the depression clause. They were like, "Listen, if you're depressed at all, if you're having trouble sleeping at all, we're just going to say you have a chemical imbalance." Because everybody should be fucking happy nowadays, <laughs> right? And so, like, you just look at that world, you know. And so you have you have a you have the food environment, right, which is always getting you to look up like the new novel food. Forty thousand new products that are entering our shelves that are competing for your attention, all of which didn't exist a hundred years ago. Then you have all of the chemical factors that go into creating, you know, any number of uh, different, you know, metabolic dysfunctions that happen in your body. Uh, you have a sugar-laden, ultra-processed food environment. Now you feel terrible all the time. You have problems waking. You have problems sleeping at night. Uh, well, we've got this thing. It's a sugar pill. It's in essence is a sugar pill, but you can take this just to keep going. You know. And but uh, unfortunately, it's slightly addictive and you have to take it for the rest
0: of your life. <laughs> yeah, right. You yeah. just like, what are we doing? <laughs> it's a big question. It's a yeah. big question. And uh, man, it's it's so so deep and and disturbing considering how many Americans are on are on these pharmaceutical interventions, not to mention how many school shooters uh, were on these every single one, isn't it like every single mm-hmm school shooter has has been on one of these antidepressants meanwhile what are we what are we doing about the root cause absolutely nothing and, and if we think about well what are some less invasive quick fixes exercise is a big one that you could go for a walk every morning i'm pretty sure omega-3 like a cod liver oil supplement has outperformed antidepressants even something like creatine i've read shows some high mm. potential and that's just like a scoop in water and there are benefits beyond cognitive enhancement with with the creatine supplement and if we think about the the root cause of like hey what is causing all this depression that we're experiencing yeah I think a lot of Americans do have meaningless jobs and and that's definitely a contributor but the, the food as well you mentioned all these new food products imagine if a new food product had to advertise the way pharmaceuticals had to advertise you'd have you know hey here's this new snack it's it's this cheesy cracker shaped like a fish. Um, it, it'll it'll give you some calories, but hey, by the way, it may contribute to obesity and depression. And it, but hey, it's the snack that smiles back. Old fish, you know, give it to your children.
1: Yeah, and they, they taunt you with it, right? So you see, like Lay's will be like, "I bet you can't eat just one," right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right? And so they they know they've created an ultra uh, addictive substance. Um, you know, they were using the same science that the cigarette industry was using. Um, you know they, they knew how to create addiction, um, and you know one of the bigger problems with uh, the way these companies operate is um, we don't produce enough children uh, for them to be able to make quarterly and yearly profits, uh, and so the Wall Street will punish them if they're not doing that, and so what they what they're constantly trying to do is get the same consumer to to overconsume. Um, you know Oreos, um, so they they have a very specific mechanism. Uh, they have initial taste and sen- uh, taste sensation that happens and occurs in your mouth, right? Um, it's a perfect combination of sugar, fat, and salt. Um, and what it does is, while you're chewing it, you don't even really need to chew it, right? Uh, it's going to dissolve in your mouth. Uh, and so there's no real sort of um, mechanism that your body recognizes this as food because it's already pre digested. Um, you know, Kellogg even talked about this in the eighteen nineties. Um, part of the reason why he was trying to deal with all of these people who had all of these gastrointestinal disorders was he his answer to that was cornflakes. It's a pre-digested food, so he'd grind it up, he'd masticate it, he would dry it out, um, and he would sell it to you. It, he sold it as pre-masticated food, um, and so. You know, you look at the origins of a lot of these foods and you say, well, this is the re- so, w- so what happens within your body? You never reach that point at the end of your intestines where you get that sort of satiation, um, the sort of ghrelin to, uh, ah, I always forget it's the, the other one. Uh, um, the, you have this uh, mechanism at the end of your uh, intestines that, that produces satiation. That's why they always say wait 20 minutes for uh, between uh, going up for seconds because you may actually be full if you're eating real food quote unquote if you're eating real food you might actually be full but your body just hasn't recognized it yet um, and so like think about those things so, so they they give you this pre-masticated food um, it's already your body immediately absorbs it you know huge sugar rush uh, and an hour later uh, your body says well i'm i'm, I'm still hungry um, and so what they need you to do is just overconsume. consume. And that will, that will bleed into quarterly profits and yearly profits for them. Um, and for years, they thought that uh, they couldn't break um, this, um, it, I don't know if you spend a lot of time around kids, but um, kids would overeat. They go to a birthday party, they'd overeat, they wouldn't eat dinner. Um, if they overeat at one meal, they wouldn't eat all that much. Um, part of parenting nowadays is like, my child might starve, you know. But they they had an they had this mechanism that would say this is this is how many calories you're going to consume during a day, uh, and you're probably just not going to be able to consume much more than that. Uh, and for years, the processed food industry couldn't break that. Uh, well, they figured it out in the '90s, and you know, like. So by 78, they were primarily working on it. By the 90s, they had perfected it. And so now you have these kids who are, you know, I mean, they're six years old. You have have eight-year-old girls who are going into puberty because their bodies are just gaining so much weight because they figured out how to break that mechanism. You know um and so you know a a lot of it is like you you have to understand that the consumer is the end result of an environment that is pushing you towards that so you know like you go to soccer game you watch the soccer moms Right, everybody's required to bring a snack. You watch what they're giving their kids, right? You don't want to be the person who's like bringing, you know, beef jerky or something like that, right? Like real food. You don't want to be that person because everybody else is bringing like the most hyper palatable, like you know, because your your child will pass out on the field because they've been running for sixty <laughs> minutes, right? Uh, <laughs> juices, high C, like Sun Kissed soda caffeine all of this stuff for your for a child to like run around for sixty minutes you know and so that's the environment and I, like I never want to blame the parents the, the parents like we, we've we have created this market where you have ten companies that control the world's food system globally there are ten companies left right maybe fourteen depending on how you subdivide it Unilever Nestle Cargill Pepsi coca-cola all of these different companies. Are finding you know new ways to to get people addicted all the time. They're competing with each other. They're colluding with each other. Um, They're doing all of this stuff, and you are the market. You are the product at the end of the day that they're trying to get. Um, Red Bull sponsors like you know, I mean, think of all the baseball games you ever went to, football games. Like who was there? Who was feeding your children? Who was who was there during that environmental moment where you're going to look back, um, you know, either with happiness or with sadness because your team lost. But you, but with an, a, a a major emotional event, they are there, so you associate their food with these memories, you know. And so, like for me, it's like you know, uh, my films are like you have to understand that this is that you know the consu- like blaming the consumer for the end result of an environment that's like that is like dude you're in a zoo <laughs> like you know like we somebody built this zoo around us and we're stuck in a cage and they're just feeding us whatever the fuck they want to feed us You know? Yeah. And so like you're an outlier, right? Casey, you're an outlier. Like you you don't fit within that. And people don't know like how to quantify, like how you can do what you do, how you challenge yourself, like how you, you know, doing all this stuff and you're metabolically fit enough so that you can you can coexist with this environment. But I'll tell you, it has to do the same thing to you as it does to me. When you walk around and you see people, uh, families who are like whose kids are, you know, you're just like, dude, like. You know, we have kids getting knee replacement surgery at nine years
0: old. It hurts. It hurts and it's heavy. And it's wild how successful these multinational corporations have gotten. They've become so huge and they've become so effective at manipulating our minds to selling us more and more addictive food. And it's really getting to a breaking point now where not just through the lens of health, but through the lens of just ecological harmony where where there's the soil is, is is just being dead from all the glyphosate and various pesticides that are sprayed to get this you know food on, into our our bellies faster that doesn't even serve us from the standpoint of health and and i know that i've, I've been through a journey myself where, where i did experience ill health as a result of, of trusting these companies and not being aware of the mm-hmm. proper way to align with with nature and i've, I've come to understand these foods as more like drugs than than like foods because they really are. If, if you stop and think about something like cocaine or crystal meth or you know any of these hard drugs that are incredibly debilitating to people who use them, um, a lot of these foods it, are the same way. cereal, you know, little snacks. It's sugar. Just think about sugar as a, as a substance. It, it's not really not nourishing. It's addictive, and and that's the definition of a drug. Something that's that's providing no value and, and is addictive and It's once you look at it in that way, it becomes crazy that kids are eating cotton candy at a baseball game because they're they're definite they're doing drugs. These are edible drugs that these kids are doing. We wonder why they have to get near replacement mints at nine. Meanwhile, sugar is incredibly corrosive to the entire body mind system. So it's something that I'd like to see more people become aware of. Hey, this this food. These these things we think of as food—it's not—it's—it's it's in no way nourishing. It's absolutely an addictive drug, and it's damaging. It's incredibly deeply damaging.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think there's—I mean, there's so, so many tangents we can kind of go into that. I, I think part of it is like, um, I I do believe that our environment uh, now, whether it's community-based or anything like that, is 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 centered around disconnection um and disconnection um is one of the easiest way to lead people into addictive behaviors um because you know we we spent 99.8% of our existence living as hunter gatherers within within groups um you depended upon those groups for uh for everything um and um we what we've done to our civilization is we've created enormous, and you can you can even read in 1950s um, advertising executives and psychologists working on this and, you know, um, not understanding the evolutionary environment, but it sort of understanding it intuitively, was that you had to create this level of disconnection in order to, to have people fill that void with some degree of consumerism, right? Right. Um, whether it's competing with the next door neighbors for to buy the new car or the latest gadget or you know whatever the the new fast fashion is, um, you know we used to have, you know like you look at the '80s, the eight, like you look at fashion in the '80s, it was like it was very little difference. You could say you could look at somebody dressed in the '80s, but like dude, that's the '80s, right? Side ponytail, bangles, like whatever the hell else, you're like that's '80s. That was a decade worth of clothes, right? And now we do that We do that seasonally. We do that four times a year sometimes, right? We are constantly changing. We're trying to convince people, oh, you know, like peg-leg pants are in, but now it's bell-bottoms. Now it's peg-leg again. And you're just like, people are like, what the hell is going on here, you know? And they're filling up their weekends, going to the mall, consuming, buying, doing all this stuff. But what they're trying to do is fill a void. Um, and so, like, to go back to the zoo analogy, like, we, we have to understand what... Uh, what works for us evolutionarily? Like, what are the foods that work for towards human health? What are the what are the, what are the events in life that provide the most connection? Right, um, family meals. Um, I used to tell a story um, when I was um, working at the nonprofit. Um, I get in front of families, um, and we would do these family meals. Uh, we had all the families would come together. I would cook food, um, you know, for like, you know, one hundred and fifty people. Um, And I would sit down and a lot of them were first generation immigrant families that wanted to get into the American dream that, you know. Um, but the, So the National Honor Society did this um, poll. They were trying to figure out exactly, National Honor Society are, are kids in high school who get typically on average over 95 or above in, in all of their academic or most of their academic subjects. Uh, and they get inaugurated into this like, national program um, called the National Honor Society. So they, they were trying to figure out, like, what was there a common denominator for people who did really well in school? Um, you know, you have first generation kids. You have racial differences, gender differences, differences in income. All of these different things. None of them were parallels. The only parallel that they found was that they actually had family meals. Uh, they sat down. Um, you know, majority of these kids went went home and had a family meal uh, together. Um, And, you know, like you go through the same road. What did you learn in school today? Nothing. (laughs) You know, like all that bullshit. But the kids know that you care because you're you're making a meal and you're sitting down with them. That level of community um, is enough that, you know, you can actually decrease uh, drug addiction rates. You can work on, you know, teenage alcohol, uh, trying cigarettes, all of that stuff just with a family meal. Um, and people, like, that's something, you know, that is tenable. It doesn't have to be, it could be family breakfast if you don't have time at the end of the day. Um, you know, those those are the mitigating factors. But, like, trying to get people to sort of um, realize, like, the level to which uh, the American worker is so fucking, like, overwhelmed right least vacation time in the world no guarantee of healthcare right no guarantee of like a- adequate healthcare that's actually going to deal with long term problems as opposed to short term solutions um, you know, we, we don't travel outside of the United States. We have no idea what the U.S. looks like, you know, like from other people's perspectives. Like, try living in England. They're like, yo, you people are nuts. <laughs> the Irish are like, you know, they, I mean, the Irish have like alcohol problems and stuff like that. They're very different. But they, they center... Like, their day at the end of the day is at the pub. Kids are running around. They're they're playing outdoors. They're getting wet. They're, like, playing in the mud. People are drinking. They're shooting the shit. They're talking about Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton and how Americans, like, give so much, like... This is when I was traveling, when I was, like, 20. But they were like, why do you people care who he's banging, (laughs) right? So you like you know you have to travel you have to see like that that Italians go home for lunch they take 2 hours a day for lunch they 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 have this thing called the 13th month which is an extra month of salary that they spend on vacations or they spend on each other around christmas time they have 5 to 6 weeks of vacation a year they, they travel. They spend time together. They argue about, like, whose olive oil is better. Like, they, they talk about food in a way that we don't talk about it. We talk about it where we dissect nutrients uh, and we say, saturated fat's going to be bad for you. Well, we don't know anything about nutrition. We're still in the, the, the dark, like, it's all nutritional dark matter, right? 99% of what the interaction of food in our body, uh, we have no idea what the hell that is. Right. But we can go and we can take out one thing and say that one thing is the thing that's going to ruin you, kill you. You know, Um, it's so ridiculous to me, like as an outsider in the nutrition wars to see people go to town for months on end, arguing over one thing. And it's it's interaction within your body. I'm like, come on, guys, like, you know, we have 14 we like we have 14. antioxidants in time in the herb time alone 14 like that we know that we can measure all the other ones we don't know what they do we're like whatever you know but we're going to focus on that right reservatrol from grapes that that is going to allow you to live forever like no not really in maybe in rats you know <laughs> you know and so you wonder where like people walk away confused they're like fuck you people you know Like They're like, what are you talking about? Reservatrol. I've never bought Reservatrol at the market. You know, like, what are you talking about? Right. Um, And so most consumers are just like, tell me what to eat. And you know what? Most of them have. They've decreased red meat consumption. They moved over to margarine from butter. They stopped trusting what their grandmother fed them. They stopped trusting ancestral wisdom on how to deal with like sickness with bone broths and all this other stuff they stopped trusting this because they had experts sit down and tell them this is the way you're going to live forever and as they were getting more and more obese and getting chronic metabolic conditions that were associated with their food then at the end of the day they were blamed for it because they weren't adhering to you know a process they were they were told was supposed to work for them you know and it's so sad to see that generation of like 60, 70 year seventy-year-olds like grow up in this environment where they were promised all of this stuff, um, you know, and they're genuinely pissed. Why wouldn't they be pissed, right?
0: Yeah, that that sacred rage is is stoking some fires of change, but but not enough. It's we need more energy, more passion behind this, more creativity as well. And and the film that you helped create, Sacred Cow, is one of the among the best films, documentaries in the world of ones that are sharing the truth. There are so many out there that are spreading lies and, and manipulating people. I think um, you shared the name of man, Jim Greenbaum, who's kind of behind all of these films and, and funding them. Oh, and, right. And um, it, it seems like, how, how did you get involved with Sacred Cow? What was your experience like in making that? I know you were a producer on a film. What what does a producer do? And, and what are you working on now? A lot of questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Us out there, but very um,
1: yeah, so I always I, uh, I always implore people. Uh, IMDb is a is a website that you can go to um, uh, whenever your new vegan film comes out. Uh, you can see who the producers are on it. Um, producers are very different. Um, some are very hands on. Uh, they they deal with marketing. They deal with uh, budget. Um, they deal with fundraising. Uh, some will provide. Uh, money as well. Um, our, our company, Archer Gray, would provide finishing funds for films. So you have all of these artists, right? Um, they've been working on a film for three or four years. Uh, they're 70% complete. They want to get color correction. They want to get editing help. They want, um, they, they've been living in this project for three or four years. They don't necessarily know whether or not they're making a coherent argument. Uh, and so we'll, we'll come in at the end, uh, and provide the funds for finishing, and then all of the help to sort of maybe get them into the festival circuit, or uh, and then you have to sell the film afterwards. So the producer is like got his hands in many different elements of that. Some are totally hands-on in the project all the way through, uh, and then others will just provide funding. Um, and there, there are a lot of crowdfunding for uh, product- producers nowadays where. Uh, a film is trying to get it finished and you know, you give $5,000 and you're an executive producer on the film, right? So, um, so it's, it's sort of a nebulous definition, like what a producer is, but if you go on IMDb and you look at the producers for a lot of, say, vegan films, uh, you will find some of the people will show up again and again. Uh, Jim Greenbaum is, is one of them. Uh, he is an ethical vegan. Uh, he made a ton of money, like $300 million in the telecom industry. Uh, And so he's been able to leverage all of that. He has one single-minded focus, and that is the ending of animal agriculture. Uh, he works for Mercy for Animals. Uh, he's a large donator to any number of different groups. Uh, you will find him on most of them. Um, I don't know if he has any editorial process, like if he tells them exactly what they should be saying. Um, but he is funding vegan-centered films, and he has a lot of money towards that. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, is one of them. He did Eating to Extinction. He is vegan, but he's also a Saudi prince. I mean these these guys grow up with so much wealth, it's like you you couldn't even understand the level of wealth like you know like it, it's just so off the charts you know. But he, he is vegan identified and he, he promotes a lot of vegan causes. Uh, he's an executive producer on that. And so you have billionaires telling us exactly what to eat uh, and 100 millionaires as well. Um, so and that, that goes in a marketing budget that gets gets you so that you get Game Changers being like one of the most successful you know, documentaries of all time. I'm like yeah because you paid for it right like documentaries are hard right documentaries are like I'm competing trying to tell a narrative story uh, about like our perspective on meat consumption but I'm also competing with like aliens built the pyramids and you know, <laughs> like whatever else is out there it's like they're all considered documentaries um, and there's no like governing body of documentaries that verify the the truth of any of it right um, the girl, uh, the the journalist who reviewed Sacred Cow, uh, not Sacred Cow, um, Kiss the Ground, uh, in the New York Times, I think was just out of college, and the only thing she said was, "Here's a film that just came out that talks a little bit about regenerative agriculture, and also has Woody Harrelson and you know some supermodel in it, right? And that's it, like that's the review, right? So you're talking about the entirety of talking about." Animal, like uh, no, just agriculture in general. They try to go the entire history of agriculture, and she's like, "Oh yeah, Woody Harrelson like narrated it." And I'm like, "What? You know?" So, all right, so that's the producer. Um, so. Sacred Cow for me was a real passion project because I had been working in the nonprofit sector for a long time. And uh, we were a vegetarian nonprofit because we were going into schools and we say, what's the problem that's on this plate, right? It's a lot of junk food. And so meat isn't necessarily a problem, um, but what else are we going to fill that plate with? Fresh fruits, vegetables, cooked in-house, like we're going to do that. So we're going to be vegan, vegetarian identified because it's the lowest percentage of... Um, food that's eaten, um, you know, in in the American diet, and most of that's potatoes in some form or other. Um, So we're just going to focus on that. And so we did a lot of, um, you know, gardens because kids – kids have a hard time trying, trying novel foods, but you can create an environment in the classroom that's positive peer pressure that'll get them to try things. And we were working with kids who are on the autistic spectrum. We were t- working with kids who grew up in uh, foster care. Um, you know, we were working with like th- some of the poorest congressional districts in America. And w- what we found is kids weren't actually the problem at all. Um, but what I found was with the organizations that I was working with over the decade was that there was this palpable shift that was happening in the way we were talking about food that was then blaming meat again right so we have to remove meat from the plate and we're just going to feed these kids vegetarian and I was like wait a second this is ridiculous Um, and so Um, So, I started to kind of push back on that and I I was like, where is this coming from? It's coming from academia, it's coming from these um, Columbia University, it's coming from larger sources outside of this um, who were trying to shift away from animal agriculture. Um, And they were doing an experiment on children, right, because these are kids who have no choice. Um, You know, they're getting 60, 60, 65 percent of their meals from the DOE. Um, And they have no choice. And meat is typically the most expensive thing. So it's like, of course, we're just going to remove that. We'll save money. And then we can convince these kids that meat was the problem. And, you know, we had Meatless Mondays. And now we have Vegan Fridays in New York. And so we had this all of these different people descending upon kids in the inner city saying, you know, we're just going to take this away from you. Um, And so when I found Diana, I was like, wait a second. So you have somebody who is a registered dietitian was a first-time filmmaker, who is talking about this from an ecological perspective, from an ethical perspective, and a nutritional perspective? You know, because everybody's in their own wheelhouse, right? So you have like people who are arguing the the climate change environment, the water, you know, water usage for beef. Uh, any number of different uh, land use. Uh, you have all of these different people who are focused on these single button issues, and then you have this one director who comes who said, "I'm going to try in 90 minutes to dismantle all of these arguments." Poor woman. I mean, it was really hard. You know, traveling the world, like trying to find the experts in this field who are going to break this down in a way that if you're not associated with uh, animal agriculture at all, you're going to like, oh yeah, this kind of makes sense, like. It's not the water that comes upon the land it's how much that land can absorb the water so that things can grow back you know like if you're if you're building an environment where if you tried to create a perfect utopian environment for food what would that look like Um, if you were trying to restore soil what would that look like Um, and what we found was every single time we played out those scenarios we we kept on putting animals back onto the land Right? And we kept on doing what they have done for a very long time in a way that was beneficial to that environment. And so we were like, all right, let's focus on that. Then we'll focus on, you know, like uh, butcher shops, we'll, we'll focus on the craftsmanship of meat. Um, we'll talk about people who are actually working hands on um, in improving uh, the ecosystems, combating desertification, uh, any number of different things, and then try to make a distinction between animal agriculture and the large CAFO agriculture monoculture that is is so dominated, uh, you know, U.S. and and Western European agriculture for a very long time. Um, that that was part of a process um, that really disenfranchised farmers since the 70s. So you know, force them to consolidate, get bigger, get out. What happens to farmers when they do that? Well, you have to make compromises. You have to house 50,000 chickens because you're only making a quarter off of a $24 KFC bucket of chicken. You make 25 cents. You take all the risk of that chicken, all of it, but you make 25 cents. So everybody else has got their hands in that KFC pulling money from these farmers, and they're the ones taking all the risk. Um, and so, like, can we talk about all of this stuff in totality in 90 minutes? <laughs> you know, So it was really hard case. I mean, I'm telling you. <laughs> and then to, to put it out into the world, like during COVID and put it out into the world where the film festivals were like, yeah, but the world is going planet based. So this is not the messaging that we want, you know, and we knew that we're, it was going to be problematic. We knew we could talk to you. We knew we could talk to people who you like cared about the, these issues, um, but we wanted to reach a wider audience because there's so many people who just don't have the time to dive into, you know, ten years worth of agricultural history, nutritional history, you know, plant-based movements, 7th um, day Adventism, religious ideological movements, ethical movements, like all of that stuff. You don't have a decade to dive into all of this stuff. So here, just take ninety minutes and like, let's
0: hope. <laughs> 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 right. Yeah, and it was it was great. I know the book as as well is is, is exceptional. So distilling and it's it's packed it's packed full of information, and it's like three hundred plus pages, I, I believe. So distilling that into a ninety minute film is it's got to be incredibly challenging, and especially in, in the climate where there's so many oddly anti meat voices, because we we both know that meat really is the healthiest thing that we can eat. And, and it's been proven over the past five to 10 years, I've seen a huge change in understanding of that, primarily from the momentum from the carnivore diet. People are eating only meat and they are healing. They are cha- transforming their health. So on it, all you have to do is look at that okay, obviously meat is not unhealthy. If people are healing from ulcerative colitis that they've had for 10 years, they've been taking medication yeah. every day, they eat only meat and they're off all meds, they aren't suffering any symptoms from ulcerative colitis, which a doctor will tell you has no cure. Meanwhile, you're eating only this mm-hmm. thing that is unhealthy and you're healing it, how, how can that be? We know that this narrative is being funded by mostly people with, with the profit motive. Meat has, has really small profit margins and, and plant-based food can be marked up significantly more and, and be, is more profitable. But there's also people like you mentioned, very rich funders who simply are uncomfortable, you know, with the fact that, that animals are dying for, for whatever reason. Uh, there's really no other logical explanation aside from, from profit motive or someone who's just kind of disconnected from, from nature and, and the way that life eats life. And um, from your, your perspective, how do you see, how do you see this playing out over the over the next few years? Do you see this momentum on on the side of truth, um, kind of growing, or, or do you see that being squashed by some of these larger players? Um,
1: I mean, it, it'll it it's definitely going to be interesting. I, I have found uh, there is a sort of um, uh, a growing cadre of people who are um, so. What has happened? What what has happened in the argument? uh about meat um i find is actually kind of profound um so um and i have noticed that the the people who are pushing back really hard against the vegan agenda now are people who are um who have studied the history of conservation and colonialism uh, in places like Africa and, um, you know, it, uh, with pastoral and indigenous groups um, in Central and South America, uh, as far as uh, up as in the Nordic as well. So you have these people who are primarily focused on indigenous rights, um, you know, the, these people who... the who actually guard like 90% of the world's biodiversity. Um, these people who have studied them and advocated for them, who are activists for them, who have actually gotten into this melee because they they are saying the same thing. They say the people who are pushing a plant-based agenda are also the same people who are uh, forcibly displacing indigenous people all in the name of this idea that we have to decarbonize. Um, and lo and behold, a lot of the places that indigenous people Uh, have been excised from also contain minerals and mining and you know lithium and all of the rare earth minerals uh, and materials that we need in order to decarbonize so this is a new form of colonialism and so now you have this whole other group of people who are not really particularly interested in the diet wars, who were like, what the hell is wrong with you plant based people, (laughs) you know, like, it, you know. Um, And so I do think that the movement um, is is growing in sort of weird ways, right? It's sort of like getting sort of pushback from uh, sources who I wouldn't have expected even just a couple of years ago. I do think that the people who are uh, the academics who are fighting this are doing a really good job. Um, I wish that the people who are doing these fundamental shifts in their health, uh, low carb community and um, uh, the carnivore community would get more and more focused on regenerative agriculture. Um, there is a growing number of people who are doing that. Um, the meat mafia guys are actually doing a really good job of that. Um, they they are looking at farmers and trying to connect farmers to this. Because at the end result of that, if you're talking about disconnection, right? Everybody's saying we're so disconnected from our food system. Well, if you're a low-carber and you go to the supermarket and you see meat on those shelves and you're not thinking about where that meat came from, there may be a day when that meat is not there, you know? And that is because the profit margins for, for ranchers um, and farmers is so low. Rethink X, which is a sort of weird offshoot group, a consulting group, Um, he's he's a really wealthy guy um, who primarily focuses on like paradigm shifts, uh, you know, plus 10 years. Um, Most of his predictions are wrong. I don't know why people follow him, but he, he actually made a really interesting point. He said that because those profit margins are so small, any disruption to the system means that the entire system could collapse. Right. And so these guys are looking forward to that. They're looking for the level of disruption that they can create that will collapse the entire system. And that collapse will happen at, at the rancher, uh, at the rancher level. Uh, and that collapse will happen at the consumer level. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about the meat industry, we're talking about meat packing, which is where most of the profits are made. Uh, I don't know how much of those guys are actually even paying attention to any of this stuff. You know, the billionaires, they don't even know what the price of steak is, you know, JBS. They asked the, the you know, one of the sons who, uh, they were like, what is a, you know, ribeye these days? He's like, I don't know. I haven't paid for any of this shit, you know, for like generations at this point, you know? I'm like, dude, it's your job. Like, this is your JBS, you know? He's like, I don't know what a steak costs, you know? <laughs> I'll tell you what my yacht costs, right? He's like, I know what my yacht costs, $600 million. Um you know, so like I, I look at all of this stuff and I'm just like, all right, um, you know, I, I, I want to go back to one of your questions before. So after Sacred Cow, I was like, ah, oh, God, do- documentaries, they fucking suck. Like it just sucks to like work so hard on something and then, you know, you can't branch, you can't break through the like all the rest of it um and so i was just like i'm gonna take a break from docs um i met these two uh young artists uh filmmakers who had just begun a project uh called death in the garden uh jake and marin um and I, and they were like putting out some really amazing interviews and i'm like who the, who the hell are these people uh and so i reached out to them and i was like you know what Like, what would it take to get you guys so that we can make a film um, that's gonna talk about some of the other stuff that's actually happening, this sort of global, the green colonialism that's actually happening. But like, let's center on food again because we're still in the agricultural revolution. When we teach history, we're like, oh, this happened 10,000 to 15,000 years ago. The agricultural revolution is what we're in. Like, none of this occurs. You don't have a Tesla without food. You don't have, you know, Jet blue without food. You don't have, you know, nothing. None of this exists without food. Um, and so, can we talk about an agricultural revolution from the perspective of civilization? Like, what is civilization in this perspective? Um, and like, let's get to see if we can talk about this from like a, a thirty thousand foot Martian anthropologist view of what the world is. Um, And what we have done since the agricultural revolution is we have turned the biomass of this planet uh, into food, right? And we've grown civilization around it so much so that we don't actually think about where our food comes from anymore, right? And so that's the 30,000 foot view is that you can have people like Michael Bloomberg running for president who's like, you know, he shits on farmers. I'm like, Mike, you spend three days without food and then like shit on farmers like you new york city would have is three days worth of food say apocalypse happened you know some huge traumatic event three days to feed 11 million people otherwise we run out right that's what cities are they're monocultures right they're monocultures that are part of the zoo that are fed the foods that come in um so can we talk about like that and then can we get people who are not part of this agricultural revolution? Who are part of it, but not really thinking about it? Can we get them to think about what the future would look like if the zoo actually incorporated um, a reverence for the land, a reverence for you know human health, a reverence for com- connection, and you know um, like a, a connection that happens on you know a microscopic level with with human beings? Well, we'll stop dividing each other. Um, create an environment that is conducive to health, happiness, and you know all the other stuff, right? Um, see if we can talk about that from a thirty thousand foot level, and then see if we can bring it down to give people like a story they can tell themselves so that they can move forward with that, you know. Um, and so that's the Death in the Garden film, and. It's it's been I, I mean, I have these poor kids like they're in the Arctic Circle working with Sami reindeer herders and then they're down in Turkey working with pastoralists like, you know, <laughs> like where do we go next? I'm like, go to, you know, Arizona. There's some uh, southwest black ranchers are, are having problems getting uh, agricultural loans because uh, black farmers have been marginalized since um, the USDA has been marginalizing them since uh, the early part of the 20th century. So can we talk about that? Can we shame our Congress to actually take care of these ranchers? Um, like, so let's film everything and then see what we got at the end of it, you know? Uh, and so we've been doing that. It's been really interesting. The stories are amazing, you know? Um, and we want to give, like, younger people. I mean, these kids, uh, Jake and Marin are, like, 26 and 28. We want to give them a purpose, right? We want to tell them there is a world that can be created uh, that looks like a world that you would want to live in. Right. There's not trash piles everywhere where you're like going, you know, like all of that stuff. Like, what does that world actually look like? You know, and it really does start with the soil. it Starts with the land. It starts with uh, having this, uh, a notion of where it come, comes from, you know. So I don't know. It might be a five parter. <laughs> right. Like, how do you tell that story?
0: Yeah, I I mean I'm really looking forward to this. I remember we connected a while back and he told me about this and then I I connected with Jake and Marin and I've listened to a few episodes of their of their podcast and they were were vegans who were suffering as a result of of that dogma and then regained their health and are discovering regenerative agriculture and and I'm really looking forward to this documentary coming out and and as you said it's part of this vision of of a more beautiful world that our our hearts know is possible and and I think Art and, and video, documentary, all of this is a really important part to give people a vision, to give them inspiration, give them a purpose, and, and to wake them up and, and give them awareness around what we can do as a species when we set our mind to it. We've been living through this agricultural revolution. We've seen where it's fallen short, and we're on the cusp of a new revolution. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing to help folks awaken to that And and be invigorated by it and, and contribute to, to this new revolution that, that, we're, that is currently occurring and, and creating a world that we, we know is gonna better serve our human families. So I wanna thank you for that and, and for the time that you've spent with me here today, discussing all this. Is, is there anything else that you'd like to leave folks with or, or share?
1: Uh... No, no. You know, um, uh, what, what it, after what you were just saying, I, I was I was reading a book this summer. Uh, it was a, a West Point teacher um, who uh, Westport's a military academy. Uh, she she teaches English at at um, at uh, West Point, uh, and she wrote this book. I think it's called like Finding a Good War um and one of the things that she says um happens a lot with soldiers who have actually been through uh, a lot of combat who've been through like you know World War 2 or World War 1 So said one of the the themes that always comes back is if we had, if we could just use the energy that we have in destroying things for creating like what a different world this would be right um and so these are people who like actually because i mean World War 2 right um it, it is it, it's a constant notion, I think, with human beings when they're in that to to see the level of skill that human ingenuity could create if we work towards building something better. Um, you know, I mean, we have to get rid of these companies that use us and call us consumers, right? Um, we have to get rid of their notion that they they're dominating uh, our worldview and that you know, like, every single aspect of that is so toxic um and so i you know i do think it's it's important to kind of understand this stuff um you also have to understand that you grew up in an educational system that funnels you into that world view um and so you have to like um like what do they do deprogramming in cults you have to deprogram yourself you know you've been going through this thing for a very long time um start to understand like what are the what are the what is the environmental stuff that Builds a worldview by which uh, you think, you know. I always ask, all right, I'll leave you with this. I always ask people, universal basic income. I say, what would you do if you uh, didn't have to worry that much about, like, you know, rent and food and all of them, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? And we're like, oh, you know, I'd take a painting class, I would work on wood shop, uh, you know, I'd, I'd become a master at something, I would take up cooking, I would do all this other stuff. And I said, well, what do you think other people do? Oh, they just fucking waste it. They get drunk all the time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I'm like, well, no, they're you too, man. Maybe they would write the great American novel. Maybe they would Maybe they would fuck off. Maybe that's, you know, hedonism is like, uh, it's okay, you know? Um, but like there's a period of time when like, you know, you're fucking around too much and then you're like, all right, I'm going to do something good, you know? um and so like i do think that there's a worldview that like separates people and says that other person's just gonna waste their life and but me i would spend it doing like the really cool shit you know um and so i you know i kind of want to leave people with that um you know like you know reach out i'm i'm most active on instagram where i post like weird shit about like you know all the worst things that hum- humans do to each other—it's like the opposite of Instagram. Uh, that's Primate Kitchen. Uh, you can always DM me if you have any questions, or you know, tell me to fuck off. <laughs> you know? um, and then I'm on Twitter, but like Twitter for me is like—I don't know—Twitter pisses me off. I think the algorithm like wants to piss me off. It shows me like vegans, and you know, like uh, it forces me to comment on stuff I don't want to comment on. Uh, (laughs) So I think that's James Co photo uh, on there. Um, And then we're constantly posting new parts of our film. Uh, The podcast for Death in the Garden um, is all the interviews for the film. So we decided we weren't going to take sound bites like you want to learn about this subject listen to the stories that that we're interviewing in in their totality you can agree with them or disagree with them but like listen to it, it we want to make a film that's ju- not just sound bites um, dive into three hours of frederick LeRoy talking about the history of um you know meat and how it's been vilified or you know purity cults and vegetarianism and all of this stuff like if you want to dive into
0: it man it's like endlessly interesting you know um but yeah that's it powerful thank you so much james and i will link cool. to everything that you just mentioned in in the notes as well so that they're easy to find for folks and wow that, that was great i feel like we could have gone for another few hours and i really appreciate <laughs> you bringing the energy that was uh, that was awesome yeah cool cool